while they're leaving, if you'll find Revelation, let's read about that wedding day we were singing about, Revelation chapter 19, and uh, let's stand as we open the Word of God together. I have really enjoyed this study, and I'm praying that this morning we can pull a few things together for you, and we're going to need the help of surrounding passages, other, other scriptures, uh, to help us uh, maybe fill in a few gaps to tie Revelation together. But uh, I want us to see uh, where all of this is going. I titled the message, From Here to Eternity. And so if you thought you were going to get to see a movie this morning, that's not going to be the case. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But look at this passage. And we finished with verse 5 last week, so let's start with verse 6 today. He says, Then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has prepared herself. She was permitted to wear fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this promise of a beautiful wedding day that we're being prepared for. Lord, I pray that we would find ourselves on that day with great joy and excitement and anticipation, that we would live with that same anticipation, knowing that we are betrothed even today to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you would find us faithful, seeking you until you come again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at these verses in Revelation 19 and then begin to look at chapter 20 this morning, we'll kind of close things out in the next couple of weeks. We'll look at the great white throne judgment next week, and then we're going to look at the new heaven and the new earth. Aren't you excited that uh, God's going to make all things new? We're going to look at Revelation 21 and, and 22 before we end this study um, in September but there's probably a question that goes through some of your minds, maybe on a regular basis, maybe because you're saying, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to think about this. Maybe sometimes uh, those of us who are younger when we're faced with vulnerabilities and those who are much younger than me. Uh, certainly, when I prepare to go on a, a trip like the one to India or somewhere like that, I want to know that everything's in order. And, and so what happens... From here to eternity. It's, it's fun to read about those things in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and what eternity, what everything the other side of the millennium is going to be like, but what happens between now and then? Now, now I realize that that title, From Here to Eternity, is uh, the title of a movie based on a book, All Star Cast. People like Burt Lancaster. I actually watched a, a clip of it in black and white this week. Ernest Borgnine is in that. Uh, Claude Aiken, some of y'all don't remember Sheriff Lovo, but he was in that movie. Deborah Carr, Donna Reed, uh, Frank Sinatra is in that movie. But the movie deals with soldiers that were stationed in Hawaii. And they're going through what they refer to as tribulations. And uh, some of them feel like they had emotionally or uh, maybe in some other way lost their way. They're looking for hope, they're looking for purpose, looking for love, and all of this is just months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, all of this may seem trivial, everything they were going through compared to what they were about 
to face. But the title from here to eternity, the title comes from a poem by Kipling uh, that is called Gentlemen Rankers. It's about these commissioned officers who were qualified not because they had, had served so long in the military, but because they're in Great Britain at the time, they were qualified by their education or some uh, connections that they might have had with royalty or something that put them in a higher ranking position. And they find themselves lost in battle, not knowing what they're supposed to do, ultimately feeling like they're condemned to die. And Kipling, in his poem, writes about these men this way. He says, And the curse of Reuben, and the curse of Reuben refers to the fact that Reuben's generation in Genesis was cursed as, okay, your lineage is pretty much hopeless. They're not going to be successful. They're not going to amount to much. And so the poem reads, and the curse of Reuben holds us till an alien turf enfolds us and we die and none can tell them where we died. We're the poor little lambs who've lost our way Ba, ba, ba. We're little black sheep who've gone astray. Ba, ah, ah. Gentlemen rankers, out on the spree, damned from here to eternity, God have mercy on such as we. I wonder if sometimes in life we feel like we are lost foot soldiers, condemned to just mess everything up, Wondering what's going to happen with us. Will we be discovered? Will we be rescued? Is there something we can hope for better than what the world and the attack, or the enemy around us, threatens us with? What will happen to us? Are we lost? Are we hopeless? Is the world as chaotic as it seems? Is God aware of what's going on? What's going to happen to us from here? To eternity, Do we have hope in the midst of the battle? Well, I want us to, this morning, reflect and pull things together. Those things that we've studied in Revelation already, some things that are promised to us in these passages that we're going to look at, and, and I want us to tie it together with kind of a picture that the rest of Scripture provides for us. So be ready to turn your pages in your Bible again and, and find a few other books and chapters as we answer this question. What will happen to us from here, from this moment until eternity? Well, the first thing that I want you to see is that we will be able to rest in Christ. Those who know Jesus Christ can rest in Christ. Now, that rest will refer to what happens to us when we die physically. If we die before the Lord comes again, there is a statistic out on death. I've heard that one out of every one die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. We can be assured that we will rest in Christ. And because of that, spiritually, we're already at rest in Christ today. What's next for me? If I don't see these days unfold in my lifetime, what is next for me? And so I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll come back to this wedding feast. But let's see what builds up to that in this rest. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll look at the first eight verses as we look at what it means to rest in Christ and not be fearful of those things that are to come, not, be, not to be worried that we're not going to be rescued or escape. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For we know that if our earthly house, a tent, and he's talking about the outer shell, this body we live in, is destroyed, we have a building from God, 
There's going to be a new body, right? A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I'm going to get a glorified body one day. Thank the Lord. He says, and in fact, we groan in this one, longing to be to, to put on our house from heaven. Uh, that old gospel song comes to mind, I'll have a new body, praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. Since when we are clothed, speaking of this earthly body, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we who are in this tent groan, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed. What is he talking about here? Some of your translations actually say the N-word, naked, right there. (laughs) We don't want to be found naked. We want to be found clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And the one who prepared us for this very thing is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Therefore, though we we are always confident And know that while we are at home in the body, while we are alive on this earth, in other words, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul would say, the life I now live in the flesh, in this earthly body, he's not talking about as opposed to walking in the Spirit, he says, the life I live in this earthly body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and that he gave himself for me. Here he says, we walk by faith, not by sight, yet we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home or present with the Lord. What is he saying in this passage? He's saying, we in this body realize there's got to be something better than this. And some of you are in pretty good shape, but you have to admit, there are times in life and all that this world throws us, all that we endure in this life, we say, there's got to be something better than this. And we read about a resurrected body and we read about a, a glorified body But that happens at the resurrection, and Paul understood that they were looking forward to resurrection, and they were saying, it's that in-between time that we're a little bit scared of. That time between the moment I die and the moment that the body is resurrected and I'm given a new body, he says, that unclothed, that naked time where I'm without a body, that is kind of scary. What's on the other side? And then he comes back and he says, I want you to be aware of this. That to be absent from the body for the believer at that moment is to be present with the Lord. At the very moment that I breathe my last breath in this life, in this body, I will breathe my next breath in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. For to be absent from the body is to be immediately, right then and there, present with the Lord. And we often have a couple mistakes that we make when, when we talk about that moment. And we talk about death and then the resurrection of the body. One extreme people go to is is teaching that there will be soul sleep at that moment. That, hey, the resurrection is so wonderful because they will preach and teach that the very next thing you know consciously after you die is the resurrection. And so you will be at soul or spirit sleep and resting and totally unaware of anything until the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, or the rapture of the church. And so you just don't have to worry about it. But that's just not what the Scripture teaches. When Jesus was on the cross in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, he told the thief on the cross who expressed repentance and faith toward him and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, today... Not tomorrow, or he didn't say your next conscious awareness. He said, today you will be 
with me in paradise. And I believe paradise was often used to describe that place with Jesus before the resurrected glorified body, before the new heaven and new earth, Revelation 20, 21, 22, before all that happened, we are present with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I know everything that that means? No, but I know that we are content and well-pleased and that we are as alive or more alive than ever before because we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. And if you look forward to heaven and, and there are things that excite you more than being with Jesus, you may not be going because those who have made Jesus Christ Lord of their lives and their number one pursuit, who have turned from sin and self and trusted in him. That's what heaven is all about. It's Christ. It's making Jesus everything. And so at that moment, Paul says, we are absent from the body. We are present with the Lord. What's the point of using the language of rest? We're resting in Christ. We're resting in his accomplished work on the cross. We're resting in his perfection. In Hebrews chapter 4, we see in the first 11 verses, that the Sabbath kind of pictured that, that rest. It was pictured in the children of Israel coming into the promised land. That was a rest. And we're told by the author of Hebrews that there is a better rest for those who are in Jesus Christ. We can not only look forward to that rest when we lay this body down and we rest in the arms of Jesus, but we can rest in the fact that no matter when that happens, like Stephen, when he was stoned to death, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I believe he was beginning to experience the Spirit's departure from the body, but somehow he was able to see into heaven and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And what we could not see, and what Paul could not see, and what the, uh, those standing around when Stephen was stoned could not see, is that as the Spirit left his body, it walked right into the presence of the Jesus who was standing with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Bible just doesn't say a lot more about that immaterial state. I, I do believe that there is no biblical evidence whatsoever that we become ghosts and begin to haunt the people we didn't like or anything like that. But there is a paradise and there is a Hades. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And those holding places aren't but so long before we face an eternal judgment. We'll get into that judgment next week. I want you to see that we can rest in Christ. Secondly, not only will we rest in Christ, what happens from here to eternity, we will be resurrected by Christ. And we haven't seen the church discussed in Revelation until, boom, chapter 19, here it is again. We're going to be res resurrected in Christ. Now, chapter 20 and verse 4 it deals with the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs. But what about the resurrection of the saints before the tribulation? Because you don't want to read too much into Revelations chapter 4 and 6. And so without reading too much into it, let's look at what 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 says. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. This is a passage that's often read at a funeral, but it should be something that motivates us for life every day. Paul gives an apologetic, a defense of the faith, a defense of the resurrection, and he says if, the, if Christ has not risen, we're of all people most pitiable. We're, we're, if the resurrection isn't real, 
what are we doing here? And so he argues for the resurrection of Christ. And he bases the hope that we have for eternity on that resurrection. And in verse 50, he begins to close out this chapter. He says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That's not speaking about the apocalyptic trumpets of Revelation. It's talking about the last trumpet the church will hear, the last big announcement, the rapture of the church. He says the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed because this corruptible must be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. What, what did he say in 2 Corinthians 5, that we're in that state where we're unclothed, that we don't look forward to, but we're content, we're well-pleased because we're absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now we're receiving a resurrected, glorified body, and it's going to be clothed with immortality. It's that new body that we're given. Now when this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Or death, where's your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death there represents death, hell, the grave, all that's involved with what would separate us from Christ forever. And he's saying it lost its sting because the fact that we believe Jesus died for our sins, how he started this chapter in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for us is according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the grave, according to the Scriptures, according to everything that had been prophesied about the Messiah, he is alive, and he is the first fruits of the resurrection, and because of that, our hope is in his resurrection. He's died and risen, and so it kills the sting of death. It overcomes the sting of death in our lives. Sometimes at funerals, I'll share Frank Peretti's famous story of the family who went on a picnic. And after they got back in the car, they actually had a bee that got in the car with them. And this bee is buzzing around, and, and the little girl who's in the back seat of the car is highly allergic. As a matter of fact, uh, bee stings could be fatal in her life. And this is even before the EpiPen tripled in price, right? And so this bee gets in, and it's buzzing around, and the dad wants to protect his daughter. She's screaming, Daddy, Daddy, get it. It's going to sting me, Dad. He's trying to find a place to get off the road. Some of you have been there before. I'm highly allergic, so I've done this. Just about wrecked the car and kill myself trying not to get stung by a bee. But he finally, you know, reaches, the, the bee flies across, and he grabs it in his hand. And before he can crush the bee, the bee stings him in the palm of the hand. And he's like, yeah, and he lets the bee go, and the bee starts flying around and, and flopping around in the car. And his daughter is saying, Daddy, 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 the, the bee is going to sting me. It's going to sting me. Don't let it sting me. And he says, baby, don't worry about that bee. You don't have to worry a bit. And she was like, well, you know, dried up the tears. Why, why Daddy? And he held out his hand. And, and the, the stinger of the bee was in his hand. And he said, that bee can't sting you. The sting is gone. That bee's just going to lay there and die. And Frank Peretti points out that that's what Jesus did for us. When he holds out his nail-pierced hands and he says, I've taken the sting of sin and death and hell and the grave 
you have nothing to fear. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll start with verse 13. Sorry, second, uh, no, yeah, verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep. The King James says, we would not have you ignorant, brethren. I always thought that's what um, girls need to memorize to resist pickup lines for guys. We would not have you ignorant, brethren. <laughs> but it says... We would not have you uninformed concerning those who are asleep. What are they doing when they're asleep? They're, they're, they're at their spiritual place of rest, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, we will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. And he says, encourage one another with these words in verse 17 that phrase, caught up, we looked at it earlier in our study in Revelation, referring to this passage. In the Greek, it means those who are snatched out. In the Latin, it's the word rapturos. There are people who will argue today, well, pastor, you can't find the word rapture anywhere in the Bible. Actually, you can find it. It's just a Latin word. We see it in a Latin translation. It speaks of the snatching out or the catching up of the body of Christ at the consummation of the ages, and I believe before the tribulation, because the very next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, goes into a look at the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And so it would make sense to me that he was writing about things that would happen before the tribulation, a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, if you will. Now, if we look at what's going to take place before, before we return with Christ, it goes back to this passage in chapter 19, the marriage of the Lamb. We're called up. That's our, our presentation. And in a Hebrew wedding, you would have a betrothal, you would have a, a presentation, and then you would have a ceremony. Our betrothals when we come to faith in Christ. But at this moment, before the, the return, at the end of the tribulation with the church, you hear something like this, this multitude, loud voices, verse 6, this praise, hallelujah, because the Lord, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Something is about to happen here. This is getting exciting. And he describes it in verse 7 as the marriage of the Lamb. She has prepared herself. Fine linen, bright and pure. These are descriptions we saw earlier in Revelation of the church, of the bride of Christ. Where the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saint. This church is clothed in white. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. 
He also said to me, these words of God are true. He's saying, John, I want you to know this. John, I want you to write this for others. You can trust the word of God with your eternity. Then I fell at his feet and worshipped him, but he said, don't do that. This, This angelic being here says, I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So there's this, this, this moment of the wedding supper of the Lamb. You realize everything about marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and His church. In the Old Testament, marriage was a picture of the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. That's why even at our weddings, when, when the groom steps out, we used to meet up here in this, uh, what's the kids' center now, the, the old sanctuary we used to have weddings up there. There was really no place for the pastor and the, the, groom's, uh, the, the, the groom and the groom's father to stand, to kind of come out from, uh, eventually just to stay in air condition. We would kind of stand somewhere in the back. But there was a little closet. You know what I'm talking about? It's still up there. A little closet uh, over to the right uh, on your way into the baptistry area. And so there were times I would stand in that hot closet with a groom and with the groom's father waiting to step out. I told one groom back there one day, I said, the worst thing to do on your wedding day is come out of the closet. But, but we would come out, the groom would come and he would stand in front of the church. And as the groom would stand, those back doors would open up and the bride would step out. And she would begin to come forward. You realize that is a picture of the rapture of the church That's a picture of the great wedding. The very fact that you have that reception afterwards, that you have some kind of meal afterwards, you have some kind of celebration afterwards, that is a picture of what we're going to experience with Christ in heaven one day. That's why weddings should always be Christ-centered. It's it's all about pointing people to Him. Our marriage should be Christ-centered. It's all about Ephesians 5, loving your wives as Christ loved the church and the church uh, showing the husband respect and the all that the, that the church shows Christ. Paul says, I speak of this. It's a mystery. I'm speaking of Christ and his church when I talk about marriage. So we'll be resurrected by Christ and look forward to this great wedding day. And then th- number three, I want you to see, here's what's going to happen after that. We will not only be resurrected with Christ, we will return with Christ. This is one of the many reasons I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. If not for a pre-tribulational rapture, there would be kind of a yo-yo syndrome here where you would just kind of be like, uh, he, he raptured me out and we're coming right back down. But no, we've been with him at the wedding feast. And then, verse 11, look at how we will return with Christ. I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. Remember, the Antichrist tried to look like this, but he wasn't faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame. John is saying, I want you to know, this is the one I saw that I wrote about all the way back in the first chapter. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, 114, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure and white linen, according to the verses we just 
read this is the bride, the church, that's coming back with Christ in fine linen, although I believe it becomes more encompassing and begins to become more encompassing at this point of all who have ever put their faith in Christ, Old and New Testament saints. And from his mouth came a sharp sword so that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, here it is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a fulfillment of Philippians chapter 2, that great um, Christological passage that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is taking place. Jesus Christ is coming back to reign and we are returning with him. And I saw an angel standing, it says, in the sun and he cried out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying in mid-heaven, come, gather together for the great supper of God. Now this isn't the wedding feast. This is a judgment feast that's taking place with these birds. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies. Now you see the Antichrist is ultimately going to be judged at this point. When Jesus Christ returns and we return with him, together, it says, he saw them there to wage war against the rider and the horse and against his army, but the beast was taken prisoner, and along with him the false prophet who had performed signs on his authority by which he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What we're seeing take place here at this return of Christ at the end of the tribulation period is not the church coming back to do the battle. Christ handles it all himself at this point. We are coming to say we're on his side. Listen, a lot of times the world tries to try to get you to take sides and, and, and then they will ask you, well, wait a minute, do you think, you think God takes your side? Uh, on, on almost any issue that you try to say, this is where God stands, this is where God has spoken, people will say, do you really think God takes sides? And my answer to that is absolutely not. God doesn't take sides. But God has spoken, and he told us who he is, and he's told us where he stands, and he has asked us to come to him in faith and repentance so that we are on his side, so that we take his side. And we're living in a season of grace. And God is delaying, according to Peter, his coming, even to this day, because he's not willing that any should perish. And so he wants those around us to be seen today not as enemies our enemies are not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and rulers of the present dark world in which we live. He wants many more to be saved. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life through a relationship with Christ. And so he wants us to be winning people to him. But there will come a day where that's too late. There will come a day where those who have set themselves as the enemies of the cross will stand against him and with the word of his mouth, 
He'll put an end to all of that and bring final judgment to this earth. We will return with Christ, not because he's on our side, but because we're on his side. We'll return with Christ finally. This is the fourth final point. We will reign with Christ. We'll return with him to reign. The body of Christ, the church. And I believe, listen, just as the church was engrafted into the vine of Israel, and then we see this during the revived Roman Empire of some kind, we see this re-emergence of Israel, God's covenant people finishing out that 70th week of prophecy from Daniel. I, I believe that just as the church was engrafted into the vine, so the vine, so Israel will now be engrafted into the church as we become one people serving and reigning together, those who have simply followed Christ from every generation. So look at this reign beginning in chapter 20. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the abyss, or the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, or that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released before a short time. And then I saw thrones and people on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony. And this is where the tribulation saints who weren't part of the rapture or earlier resurrection. And I think another argument that there's already those who had been resurrected or raptured that are part of this now joined together with those who are being raptured. But he saw these tribulation saints who were beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. They were resurrected and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. We'll read about that with that judgment that is to come, the great white throne judgment next week. This is the first resurrection, though he says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second resurrection has no power over these, but they will be priests of God and the Messiah, and they will reign with him, and he says this number again, for a thousand years. And so some have used this passage to argue for a um, a post-tribulational rapture, and that's okay if you disagree with me on that. Uh, there, there's room for disagreement, quite honestly, in Scripture. I personally believe that the reason a lot of people see a post-trib rapture of the church in all of this is because so many of the Old Testament passages are speci speaking specifically to Israel and what's going to happen to Israel, and we get into that 70th week of Daniel's prophecy during the tribulation period, 70th week of Israel's history being fulfilled. And so for Israel, in all practicality, it was and is a post-trib rapture because it's during the tribulation when they come to faith in Christ. But I believe the church will have experienced the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb at this point. And then we come back with him, we return with him, and we reign with him. There's all kinds. This thousand years has created so much controversy, all kinds of confusion. Well, are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you postmillennial? And there's some young people going, I was just told I was a millennial. I don't even know what, I don't know what all that means. Right, some are panmillennial. They just believe it's all going to pan out in the end, and they're not worried about it. But premillennial is a belief that 
exactly what I've described is going to take place, that whether it's a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture, the church is going to be raptured, we're going to return, and we're going to literally reign with Christ for a thousand years on this earth as if to say it was messed up in the garden from the beginning, but on this earth the way I created, I'm, as Jesus Christ, God is saying, I'm going to show you how it's done and that we're going to reign and judge and rule with him during that millennial reign Not everybody will be believers for some strange reason. Still, there will be those who reject Christ. But we will be reigning with Christ, those who return with Christ. There's a post-millennial argument that says that basically, really there's numbers of post-millennial views, but that Christ's reign basically established the church and so that the return of Christ comes after this thousand years, which is not a literal number, but just reflects the church age. Um, There's an amillennial view that says all of this is kind of spiritual and allegorical, and even people like St. Augustine embraced an amillennial view that just says, hey, it's just all a picture of how we get victory over the devil anyway, and how we should be reigning. Unfortunately for post-millennialists, the past century has not been real kind, because there's a, a, a growing camp of post-millennialists who believe that what's going to happen is that the church is going to so evangelize the world, and I do believe that we're going to reach the uttermost parts of the world with the gospel, and that people will be saved from the uttermost parts. But the post-millennialist crowd believes that we're going to so win so many people to faith in Christ that they will be so positioned in places of government and other things that we will basically establish a Christian rule upon the earth, and then Jesus will say, now that you've got that done, I'm coming back. That's not what I see in Scripture, and it's certainly not what I see happening in the world today. I believe the world is coming more and more perilous, like 2 Timothy 3 said it would, and that Christ is going to come back and put an end to that. It's not that we are without hope. It's not as one post-millennialist teacher that I greatly respect but disagree with said, well, you pre-meal guys... Y'all just teach people not to do anything for the kingdom, just to give up and go stand and wait for Jesus. Not true. I believe, first of all, that God's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh during the church age and during the last days. And I believe God wants to do another great awakening in my life, in your life, in the life of this church, in the life of this nation. I don't think God's finished with us until He blows the horn, right? Until Gabriel sounds that last trumpet, I don't think God's finished with us. I believe He wants us to make this world a better place. But I'm reminded again and again to quote Dr. Adrian Rogers again, that God did not send Jesus the first time to save civilization from wreckage. He sent Jesus to save people from the wreckage of civilization. And we need to be taking as many with us as we possibly can. And it influences many people for the glory of God. We need to be what the millennial kingdom will ultimately be, a preview of coming attractions. And see, we get all that and then heaven too. We haven't even gotten to 21 and 22. That's the other. I mentioned the two mistakes. I don't know if I got to both of them. One of the mistakes is soul sleep. The other extreme is people think that you'll, you'll go to funerals and people read Revelation 21 and 22 and all those descriptions and think their loved ones are experiencing that fullness of the new heaven and new earth. Hadn't been established yet. That's still to come. And, and we have that to look forward to. But right now, we have to ask the question, first of all, am I at rest? Am I resting in Jesus? And am I taking as many people with me as I possibly can when I go? See, it's one thing to know that I'm all right. But if I knew that there was a cure 
to a disease that I had and millions of others had, and I kept that cure to myself, I would be one of the most immoral, unethical people you'd ever met. I want to share the gospel, the good news, that Christ took the sting of sin and death for us so that we can rest in him, we can one day return with him, and we can forever reign with him. Would you bow your heads with me?